0: Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now.
1: So this is the first episode of the 2020 Flavors Weekly Rebrand. Interviews with enthusiasts. I'm Joe Lyons.
2: And I'm Joe Shaw.
1: Together, we're Joe Squared. We're going to traverse the country and speak to wonderful and wacky enthusiasts of all shapes and sizes. Each week we will take a deep dive into a different topic of enthusiasm and see why our interviewees pledge allegiance to their cause. It all started on a fateful day in October. Extinction Rebellion had blockaded the city and brought Trafalgar Square to a standstill.
2: We had been to their previous action on Waterloo Bridge in
1: April after a few cans of lager on the train from Winchester. We went to see what a London without cars and suits looked like. A London straight from an eco enthusiast utopia. It was a beautifully hot day with no clouds in the sky, which surely added to our amazement. People were glued to the bridge, wearing nappies, some people cooking, others preaching the rhetoric of the cause. We were told to put down our cans because it may bring the action into disrepute. Signs said no alcohol, no drugs.
2: They truly cared about how they were seen. They didn't want to be dismissed as
1: weed-smoking hippies. Men with dreadlocks were selling the Communist Times, heralding as if from a newsstand in the 1940s. As we trundled over the bridge, we spoke to the people glued to the tarmac and the journalists filming them. It was so compact and bustling that it almost felt like a commune. We got to the other side and the London we knew was back. It was like a strange vortex of time and space. So when the October action came, we felt we owed it to ourselves to go and see the movement six months on. We met at Westminster Abbey where the protesters had blocked a road. A brave old bespectacled eco warrior sang a tone deaf song. To say we were unimpressed is an
2: understatement. We carried on down Whitehall and passed what we now know to be the Samba group Rhythms of Resistance. Sounds of rebellion filled the air.
1: People were gathered around, taking photos, as we did for a short time. It seemed less powerful this time round, like some energy had left. The honeymoon period was over. When we got to Trafalgar Square, we found a beautiful old Mercedes hearse parked across two lanes. A solemn young Kurt Cobain look-alike chained to it. With his free hand, he held a biro and drew surreal images of what looked like waves and lighthouses. Only a stone's throw away from this young climate defender was a daytime drum and bass rave.
2: People dancing freely, barefoot, with the DJ conducting the crowd.
1: The beat of the sound system echoed over Trafalgar Square.
2: This is when we thought, they're taking the piss.
1: Thousands of commuters disrupted for people to dance. It stunk of a lack of self-awareness.
2: We thought that predominantly their action was in good faith and sincere. Our respect for protesters wasn't harmed but the execution in places was left wanting.
1: And with that, we called a day on our rendezvous with the October Action and went to a cafe to discuss what we just saw. (laughs) We went to our usual haunt, Banugo in Covent Garden. For a while, we'd been discussing ideas for a podcast and short documentaries.
2: On the verge of graduating from university, We were
1: no longer allowed to use their equipment for free. We had hit a financial brick wall. But we still had it in our sights to start a project. What would that project be? Maybe somewhat influenced from what we had seen on Whitehall. Cults! I yelled. And with that we began to Google cults with that enthusiastic energy you get from a new idea.
2: We didn't think Extinction Rebellion was a cult. But there were definitely parallels to be drawn between the two.
1: Our first lead was the Cult Information Centre. We read a Vice article about its founder, Ian Haworth. I found a number and gave him a ring. We
2: wanted a list of suspected cults that we could go and infiltrate. Ian let me know immediately that if he gave us a list, he'd be in court for the rest of his life. Cults are incredibly litigious, apparently. He had been in a cult previously, so we wanted to interview him in person. He bluntly told me that we'd have to pay for his time. So having hit
1: that financial brick wall again, we were forced to look elsewhere. This is when we made contact with INFORM, which stands for Information Network Focus on Religious Movements. When researching, we found an article by The Independent that claimed these two cult information charities had history. Anti-cult groups riven by schism and bitter feuds. Many despise rivals more than sex they monitor. Mr. Halworth was critical of Inform. He claims that when it was set up in 1987, the Mooney celebrated. Inform was given three years startup funding by the government. This was later extended for a further three years. During their investigation into cults, They took expenses paid trips to Mooney seminars for which she has been criticized. Dr. Eileen Barker of Inform said of her government funding one of the reasons they extended it was because we were having such trouble with the anti-cultists we really think of them as part of the problem. We use professional counselors whom we have taught about religion unlike some of the other groups who use people who have left cults and may still have unresolved problems. We have to mop up a lot of damage they cause and I'm sure they say the same about us. A month later, we agreed to meet Dr. Sarah Harvey who works at Inform. Between us, we agreed to dress smart for this meeting with the hope it would disguise our lack of experience and credentials and it might help us be taken seriously. We met in an extremely upmarket cafe slash hotel slash restaurant
2: to have a meeting before the meeting. We were out of our depth in there, but we powered through.
1: The meeting was at Dr Sarah Harvey's office at King's College London, Holborn campus. We signed in downstairs and caught the lift up, where we were met by Sarah. Immediately we felt overdressed when we saw Sarah wearing casual clothes. But
2: she was super kind and softly spoken, which cooled our nerves.
1: We sat and spoke for half an hour, trying to get a list of colts that we could go and observe. Our idea was that we get a list
2: and then go along to each cult and do a story on each of them. But
1: we learnt that the topic is more delicate than we first thought. The word cult has a lot of negative connotations attached to it. At INFORM they don't use the C word at all, instead they use the term new religious movements. This is part of our chat with Sarah Harvey. We used an iPhone for this interview with Sarah Harvey, so it's not perfect. We do apologize for the cracks and some coffee pouring throughout. Enjoy.
2: What's your background?
3: So my background is in study of um, anthropology and religion, and then social research was my master's program, which I did at the LSE, and Inform used to be at the LSE. So that's when I came across Inform and Eileen Barker. That was 2001, I did my master's. And then I Worked to inform part-time ever since. So
2: what what sort of drew you to inform?
3: Um, I think it's just fascinating. I mean religion is what I've always studied for, i got the show for 20 years now, I think religion is the most interesting thing mm. you can look at. Uh, you know people live their whole lives by religion, it's the most important thing to some people and mm. uh, I think you can't really understand what's going on in modern society without understanding people's religious belief. So there's lots of different definitions of new religious movements and one that Eileen works with at the moment is movements that have a first generation of converts Mm -hmm. so that means the movement was created and the first people to join it kind of converted to that movement and then we have um, all the classic movements of the 70s and 80s like Moonies, Hare Krishnas Mm -hmm. and so on they will have second, third, fourth generations that have been born into the movements now and that's something quite different.
1: Has there been, like, a rise or a fall since the 80s? Uh. Um,
3: it's hard to tell because there's, the movements have changed so much, so there's been a fall in public concern around them. Yeah. I mean, the 70s and 80s were the time of the cult scares and the kind of brainwashing debates and uh, legal cases and deprogramming and all those kind of mm. things going on, which is why Eileen set up Inform uh, to kind of provide objective information in that really polarised field. And now things like um, Harry Krishnas, for example, the huge majority of members now are kind of ethnic Indians, and it's not as controversial Mm. as it was in the past, because movements change when they have children born into the movement, they have to interact with society, they have to kind of get some education for their children, and then the first generation ages, and they have to have health care and pensions, and all those kind of things, so they become more (laughs) Not boring, but kind of much more
1: less extreme.
0: Yeah.
3: Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> I have to engage in different ways. See,
2: when you say objective information, so you you don't take a stance, uh, like you you would never condemn any religious movement or anything no, like we're that. we're not a lobbying yeah.
3: organisation. So our um, aim is to provide. Yeah. The term objective is difficult, obviously. Who uh, can really be objective? But to kind of provide the academic information, so. Um, we have a big network of academics. We know who's looking at what religious movement, and it's kind of informed about taking that academic information out of the ivory tower, mm-hmm. making it publicly accessible.
1: Is there any one specific uh, religious movement you're looking at at the moment, or
3: not any one in particular? Mm. We um, are quite reactive, so we have our inquiry line and. Um, we tend to look at the movements when we get asked about them because we have a database with over five thousand on file, and it's too much to yeah. keep that up to date all the time. Yeah. Especially now, it's pretty much only me here. Okay. Um, with student helpers, um, but we are interested in far right, um, kind of um, starting to collect material on incels. I don't know yeah. So, yeah.
1: involuntary celibacy. Yeah.
3: That's right.
1: Is that rising here? Yeah.
3: Um, there's a feeling that it could be because obviously it is in the states mm. um, becoming bigger more online about it so the concern from government departments and so on is that it will become bigger over here
2: but, but people are still that vulnerable to being taken by the idea of a new religious movement
3: yeah you have to kind of think about the issue of vulnerability as well because we're kind of of the opinion that people Make choices. Right. You know, yeah. people are more susceptible, can be more susceptible to joining. But you have to also recognise that people are looking for things, <laughs> and you get people who move from one movement to another because they're s- perpetual seekers or searchers, mm. we call them. So this idea that kind of people are r- really vulnerable and are suddenly snatched and brainwashed and completely changed, we don't mm. buy into that.
2: Yeah, I read that there are two different types of cults essentially. Right. As religious cults. Right. And therapy cults. Oh, is, right.
1: is that is quite that simplistic, or is it wider issue than that? Whole?
3: Um, it's a little bit simplistic, but I would agree with it. Mm. But then you could expand that even further to say there's kind of political. Oh, we don't use the term cult, but there's kind of political movements, environmental movements. Yeah. Um.
1: On that. Is there, like, uh, Extinction Rebellion? Mm-hmm. Do, they, do they fit some traits? or?
3: Yeah, no, they're fascinating.
1: Okay. Because um,
3: we're kind of interested in prophecy and millennialism as well. We've got an edited book that I edited on that. And they're really millennial because they think, you know, seven years is the time we have left. To do something. So that's similar in a way to a religious prophecy, like this idea that the end is drawing near, and mm. we have to do something about it, and something big is going to happen. Yeah. It has that kind of sense of urgency, and something's got to happen.
1: So is that a trait? Is that like a traditional trait of something? Something has to happen, like an immediacy to yeah, a new religious movement. To yeah. lots of them. Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah. What
1: other sort of main traits would there be in a new religious movement?
0: Um,
3: I th- I think kind of the enthusiasm of oh. people, which again you see in Extinction Rebellion, mm-hmm. the kind of lengths that people will go to to participate and to get their message across, and I think that goes back to like the first generation of converts because they're so enthusiastic. It's something they've chosen, it's something they kind of want to really be involved with, and. Um, sometimes that becomes their only focus. So that's when you get people talking about cults and things because people might cut off from their pre-existing interests, work, friends, family and so on because all that matters to them is the movement.
1: It was interesting to talk with Sarah and learn that Inform are looking at Extinction Rebellion. They have similarities to cults because of their prophecy that the world will end as we know it if we don't act on climate change.
2: Following this talk, we went down to an XR meeting. They have lots of different self-governed factions across the country. We met with the Hammersmith and Fulham group.
1: So, Sarah, what sort of brought you to XR specifically? What did you sort of connect with most to to become part of XR?
0: Um, Initially, it was the, well, my worry about the environment when I connected with the scientific research um, and that connecting with that on your own is very scary and very lonely but knowing there's a whole movement of people it's still scary but it's slightly less scary um, and i think i've stayed in it because of the sense of community in a large part which i think we've lost generally a lot in in society um, but there's a real sense of with all the local groups as well as being connected to the central team and it's now going a bit more global there's a real sense of a connection and, and kind of knowing that a lot of people are working towards the same things amongst other movements as well.
1: Had you done any activism previously or was it just just this?
0: Yeah I'd never been active before. Um, I don't really know why. I think it, I think it was the, particularly this threat is the scariest threat of them all, in my case. So, And the fact that it's fairly well organised, although there's problems with it, but um, it's been fairly easy to get involved. And because it's fairly decentralised, we have a lot of autonomy in doing what we want to do as a local group, so it's it's quite creative and it's you've got a lot of freedom with it. So it's been nice being part of a movement that has structure in terms of the main rebellion so you can go along you don't have to really plan that much but you can go along and be active and it's got a kind of structure and a lot of people with you but you can also do the more individual or smaller group stuff yeah.
1: So it was sort of fear based the reason why you got involved?
0: Yeah, basically, um, When I, I was concerned about the environment for a while, um, but when I went to the introductory talk for Heading for Extinction, which goes through the science of what's predicted to happen if we don't do enough in the next few years, um, it was really scary. Um, and then this group formed straight afterwards, so I joined and it's been good talking to people who get the same fears and who are also as worried, rather than it being brushed under the rug
1: a little bit um are there any like sort of downfalls of being part of such a big group are there decisions made outside of sort of your control that you don't agree with i suppose because it's such a large movement are are there things happen that, that happen elsewhere or have happened that maybe you don't align yourself with is that a difficulty
0: Generally, I agree with a lot of what's gone on and the general principles. Um, There's been so much good stuff that's happened. There have been a few instances where, because we're decentralised, you can make your own decisions. And that might be changing or that might become a bit different this year. Um, But with the Tube action in October, um, there was polls going around and most of us voted against that action. Yet, because it's decentralised, they chose, despite having that knowledge, to go ahead Um, not saying it was right or wrong but I personally was more against it than for it Um, and I think when people spoke about the rebellion generally afterwards a lot of people not involved in the movement kind of said oh well wasn't that silly or they talked about that specific point and it took away from the, the actual message of the rebellion so there have been things that I don't agree with but I do like the decentralized structure
1: after speaking to Sarah, who was fairly fresh in the activism game, we wanted to speak to someone more seasoned in rebelling. I saw a man at the bar with long
2: dreadlocks, and I thought, perfect. So I brought him over for an interview.
1: So you're Tom?
4: Yeah, I've been protesting for the last 20 years, um, pretty much. used to be part of um, samba band, Rhythms of Resistance. And so uh, from 2003 onwards we used to go out and do any, uh, we'd meet once a week, do any actions that was high up on the list, you know, it could be anything from going to a detention centre to support people or, or go to the arms fair or, you know, any any actions like that. Of- it was quite, uh, yeah, generally, uh, you know,
2: anti-corporate capitalist. You said uh, before, when we spoke briefly, that, that you, you distanced yourself from it. Was yeah, there any particular reason?
4: I, there was a, um, I saw a difference between when I used to go out in actions um, it was just a bit more of a clear us and them and since exile especially with the liaising with the police gaining permission in a way and it was almost like it changed face slightly not that I expect to have fights and that but um, I also would want the police to show their true face as well as what do you mean what do you mean their true face especially in this country authorities will act in a very civil way but still with force you know we're very much england is sort of top on that the civil the civil approach sometimes i feel like it can be put on if we were really holding uh going out on the streets and protesting about something we would get a certain response naturally from the authorities and when they're not responding in that way, uh, I just got a bit like what's going on it, here, it's a bit weird, is it, is it, it seemed like are um, very much part of a mainstream movement and not so much an independent like right when the people, you know because all the actions I've been involved in it's really comes from the people and we didn't even used to like to cooperate with the Socialist Worker Party because they we felt like they were always asking for permission, oh, can we protest here? Oh, yeah, you know, organise protests and all of that. So yeah. so,
1: yeah, well, a question I was going to ask is, is, like, is there anything that has happened under the blanket of XR that you sort of disagree with or wouldn't fully align yourself with or would it be what you just stated? I'm here with my friend and he's brought up on a few occasions, the
4: transparency with the the money. How much, um, something that I'm not, I don't really want to inquire about, but he's asked, is there a fund? And is that accessible to everybody? And uh, obviously I know it's going into running a corporation in a sense that there's, you know, it's kind of slightly behind closed doors because I guess I understand they don't want a lot of discussion about money and how much is there. Yeah. But it was a rumor that it was sort of more, uh, over 100,000 in there. And then Gail Brad, Bradbrook said, no, there isn't, like, like, very firmly. So I don't know what's going on there. I, I don't really want to even get involved with the money, But maybe there's questions that people are asking about transparency of money, what the money is going towards. I understand people are actually being paid, which is totally fair enough, because it's become like a business of sorts.
1: After we spoke to Sarah and Tom, we sat through a meeting and were surprised at how organised they were in contrast to the rebellions we had been to. They had an agenda that they ran through, which took about an hour and a half, but they were thorough in the way that they went through each point. When a point was made and people agreed, they would raise their hands and shake them in a jazz hands style. And when they disagreed, they did another hand gesture.
2: There seemed to be pros and cons with the decentralised structure of XR. Sarah was okay with the autonomy that the Hammersmith group has, but thought that the fact any group could act against the majority was damaging to XR's public image, as with the tube action in Canning Town whereas Tom believed that the collaboration
1: of exile with the authorities was preventing them from truly rebelling. Because of this decentralised structure, we believe that Extinction Rebellion isn't a cult. However, the basis for the movement, the prophecy as it were, that the world only has a limited amount of time, suddenly draws back to traits that new religious movements of the past have been based on. That's the end of episode one. Stay tuned for more interviews with enthusiasts. Thank you.